who remain behind. We'll take a look at God's word together as well now uh, in just a moment. But let me uh, pray for us one more time to set our, uh, our minds and hearts, uh, hopefully, on what God has in store for us from his word today. So let's pray. Father, we give you this time now. We pray that you direct our attention to your word, uh, not only as we hear it, but also as we consider the message that was communicated to the people of the day when it was written, and then so many uh, hundreds, even thousands of years later, as we receive this message too. We believe your word is true, and that it is, uh, it's good, it's useful for teaching us, for correcting our thoughts, and for drawing us into right relationship with you. And we thank you that that has been done for so many years and is still very relevant today as we open up your word that it's, it speaks to us. It's alive and it's active. And we ask humbly, not only as we look at your word, that you would direct our attention, but uh, convict us where we need conviction or comfort us where we need to be comforted. And um, we probably all fall along that scale somewhere. Some of us apathetic, uh, uncaring, uh, others of us burdened with the, the weight of this time of year or our, our own personal shortcomings, whatever it may be, um, this Christ child that we worship speaks to all of those areas, uh, whether we come in triumphant or in the midst of tragedy and everything in between. So we're grateful that we serve a God like this. We've sung quite a bit about that. And now as we open up your word, we pray you continue to pour out your spirit on us and to minister to us as uh, we look into your word together. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2 today, the first 12 verses. Um, you'll find it on page 956 in front of you. There's uh, a black, some black Bibles if you want to open that up if you don't have your own. Please take a moment to find that, page 956, and that will help you as we work through the text. We'll have some visuals up here as well, but I, I do always encourage you to take a look at the text itself. Um, it's helpful. So it's Matthew chapter 2, page 956. We've been re reading through the entire Bible as a congregation, I know some of you have been along with us, uh, faithful on that trek, and we're getting towards the end. And my approach to messages on Sunday has been to take a section of what we have read and to uh, speak from that. So we're going a little off script here today because, in fact, Matthew is not what we were reading. We're a little farther along towards the end in Paul's letters, but it just seems fitting around this Christmas time to take a moment to consider this. I didn't want to pass over that opportunity. Next week, uh, I'm going to be out of town and Jared Meidel will be speaking. So I hope you're able to come back and, and hear him. Uh, a member here at Redeemer, a missionary that we support through back-to-back -back ministries. And he is uh, responding to the call to come up and uh, share from God's word. So look forward to that. But before that happens, now we're in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Years ago, I remember going with Jill, my wife of uh, how many years? 20-ish plus 22, something like that now. Uh, years, we went to Dave and Buster's 
um, still there, and we decided that we would, uh, there was a, a, a little booth there where you can take a picture, you take my picture, and then you take her picture, and it creates a child, like if you two were to have a kid, you can select, you know, male, female, like a picture of what that would look like if you were to have a child, and we were childless at the time, we were newlyweds, so we did that, and we, we selected female, and uh, out came this picture of an uh, amalgam, a mashup between my face and Jill's. And it was, it made us not want to have children. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, this was an awful, awful picture. Now, we have two beautiful girls, two very handsome sons as well. Um, so thankfully, uh, Noelle, who's our oldest, who was up here today, um, didn't look anything like that child. And I wish I had kind of kept that picture just uh, to remind myself what a blessing my kids actually are <laughs> to us uh, too along the way. So that kind of made us not anticipate what our first child might look like afterwards. But as we've been reading through the Bible, if you've entered into that journey with us, you know that there was this tremendous anticipation for the Messiah who would come, that they were just yearning for this king to show up who would make everything right. So there was a little different kind of anticipation. They were just waiting for that child to be born at some point, the Messiah to come, and he shows up here in Matthew chapter 2. And during this Advent season, as we already have done some readings, this anticipation, the message that he's finally here, you think would be met with tremendous joy by everybody, but we know that's not the case. And we see some mixed responses to the birth of this Messiah, this anointed one, this anticipated one, even in this own text. And uh, the first people that we see here, the main players, are these magi. Now, the title of the message, Wise Men Still Seek Him, you've probably seen that somewhere on a bumper sticker or somebody's church sign going by. So it's kind of a tired title in some respects, but it is the message of this text as well. That there were wise people who sought the Christ child, and that those of us who are wise today will continue to do that, just like they did. In fact, we see in the first two verses here that Magi come seeking the newborn king. And here's what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who, was born, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now we know as insiders, because we read the rest of the story, all we have this extra information, we know where Jesus is born, in Bethlehem, we know the time of his birth, during King Herod's reign, but we need to join in verse 1 with the Magi from the east who came to Jerusalem searching for Jesus and asking, where is the one who was born the king of the Jews? Who were these men? Who were these Magi? A, a little quiz for you here, too. We three kings of Orient are, right? We didn't sing that today, but we could have. When was that written? All right, I'm going to give you some choices. It was written in 1 AD. All right, these guys just penned it on the way. And they found them, and they, they wrote it, and had a big hit on the uh, iTunes of the day. 323 AD, a couple hundred years later, maybe, some people were hanging out and said, hey, let's talk about these kings. 1045 AD. 1857, obviously all A.D. I should have thrown a B.C. up there too. That might have been a, an easy throwaway. So you think in your own mind, what do you think it was? And the answer is, in 1857. 
So here's this song that comes along talking about these guys who show up quite a bit later after the actual event, and they actually weren't necessarily kings. And there weren't necessarily three of them either. So we tend to take a song from 1857 that kind of imagines the scene and codify it as truth. And that's always tricky. If you've ever done these Christmas quizzes, like from the Bible too, there's a lot of things like this that we just have as images in our head because we've received it. But here this text itself does not disclose that. Though tradition certainly encouraged this interpretation, Gaspar, Melchior, Balthazar are first mentioned in the 6th century, so in the 500s. Magi, as it's here in the original text, was the name of a priestly Persian tribe for centuries and was um, often associated with magicians and astrologers. And these gifts later seem to be of Arabian origin, as we'll see a little bit later, and some have identified them with uh, Babylonia. But we really don't know for certain. We just know that there's magi from the east responding to a star that they have seen and fallen. Who gave them the 411? You know, who gave them the position? There's no GPS during that day, which I know some people, even with GPS, still get lost. I don't know if any of those people are here today. But let's um, still have these guys. How did they know where to go? How did God put this quest on their hearts? And even when they said, we'll respond, what happened? Um, if you read a, a, a lot on this, you'll see some suggest it could have been the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the area of the sky known as Pisces, or Halley's Comet, recorded in early B.C. time. Um, that text really doesn't say, and it's obviously not the chief interest of Matthew how that particular nuance occurred. Though God often works within the confines of rational explanation, he's clearly not limited to it all the time. The one who flung the stars into existence can certainly control them at will, wouldn't you think? <laughs> I mean, he operates, obviously, within the sphere of this predictability, but he is God. So this could have just been of miraculous divine origin, and we really shouldn't dismiss that too quickly. The significance of how God uses creation to direct people to himself. I mean, this is something that we know he has revealed. The creation itself testifies to a creator. You're probably familiar with some of these verses. Psalm 19, 1 through 3. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The heavens declare, they scream out that there is a God. It's just pouring forth information about the fact that there is a creator. There's no speech or language. There's no need to Google translate this stuff. I mean, it's just there to be seen, to be measured, to be reflecting the God who's put them into existence. And Paul would pick up on this later. That was from the Old Testament. Here's from the New for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Well, he's reaching back and saying from the beginning of time, creation talks about the qualities of God. It's giving material definition to an immaterial God. The invisible qualities that he possesses are out there just to be seen. You don't have an excuse for coming to the conclusion there's no God. This is what 
the Bible is saying. And there's a more general type of revelation, as it were, but the point is the same. God is there to be seen. He's disclosed himself to everybody. So then the question is basically, are you seeing him? You know, do you see him? When you look around and you see these things, do you see him? There's a specific revelation that these wise men pursued, but that star they're following it was put in place by the God who's put all kinds of signs around to say, here's who I am. This is what I'm like. Come and worship me. We just did a, a puzzle recently, the, the Midals. In fact, they're not here today. We have the puzzle to return to them. Uh, but we've been working on this uh, a little bit over, over time. And, um, you know, this, but are you seeing them there? There's one of the puzzle pieces, okay? That's just one. You can see there's a, some sea with a man in front of it. And there's a North Island or whatever. So this was a, a map of the entire world. And you have this one puzzle piece. And it fits into something that you put all together. And it makes sense as a whole. And there's, here's the picture of the whole. That's what it all looked like by the time we were finished. So it's, it was really interesting to do, but um, this piece goes into that whole thing. And you can see that there's a thousand pieces here too. And in some senses, when you have just this one piece, how much do you know about the entire puzzle? Not everything. You know a little bit. It's geographic. There's something going on here too. And you've got this whole thing and you look at it all. It's kind of the bigger picture of things. You know it's made up of individual pieces, but you see the entire picture. When, when we've been reading through the Bible as a whole, this is kind of what we've been doing. We've been seeing some of the pieces along the way. And then when we're finished and you look back at the whole thing, you say, wow, look at how this all fits. Can you imagine if there was one piece missing from that entire thing? It would drive you crazy. <laughs> and when, this, when we un, un, unfold the story, we get to this point, what they're basically saying, the authors, is, Imagine this is the Messiah. He's the missing piece. He's the one that's been, it's all getting put together and they're looking for this one right here. It's the one piece. And angels, you know, came and announced, hey everybody, the missing piece is here. Forget about the missing link. This is the missing piece of the entire thing. And the Magi are saying, we're fine, we're looking for that piece because we realize this is the one the only one who is truly worthy, truly worthy of worship. He's the newborn king. Where is this king? It's remarkable to consider the Magi may have had some familiarity with Judaism, but they're clearly not Jewish. They're Gentiles. They're outsiders. But they're looking and they're seeking. They're asking and they're observing. They're on a journey of discovery. They're, they're looking for, and you might say, are you seeing, but you might also, and this is just sort of clever semantics. Are you seeing him, but are you seeking him? And I notice this, see king, do you see the king? I, I, I thought it was worth bringing up just for fun. Like what, what is seeking? Are you seeing, are you seeing the king? It's not just are you looking for him. He's here, he's there to be seen. Are you seeing him? It's not a mystery. This hasn't been done in a closet. That's what Paul said last week. Hey, look, this wasn't done in secret. It's been declared by creation and by others. Here he is. Now, the only question to ask is, are you seeing him? Are you seeking him? Do you see the king? These magi did. They're, they're 
asking, they're observing, they're on a journey of discovery, they're asking the right question. Where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? And what's even more remarkable is they aren't simply asking for the sake of asking. They want to honor this one once they've found him with gifts. They're seeking the king. They're seeking for the purpose of worship. But in this text we see not everybody's looking to worship this one who's been born. And in verses 3 through 8, that becomes very, very clear. Here's what happens. And in the verses that follow, when King Herod heard this, he should have been overjoyed, right? The Messiah, the king of all creations here. He was disturbed. He didn't like it very much. And it wasn't just him, it was all Jerusalem with him. It's an interesting phrase. King Herod, maybe not the greatest of characters, as we'll see, but all Jerusalem filled with Jews waiting for the Messiah. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And we know later that that was a wink-wink comment. Right? So I find him so that I can go and worship him. Because later we see what he has in mind. He's not seeking to worship this king. There's a real contrast here between the Magi, Gentiles from the West, and Herod, who was the political king of the day. And we know his response. He was disturbed. He was ethnically Arabian, but born in Judea, a Roman appointee, the Roman being the rulers of the day, and a self-declared king. He had a pretty high opinion of himself, but he was constantly paranoid about losing his position of power. And he went to any lengths he could to protect it, to the point of killing his own family members, including his wife. Dude killed his wife because he was wanting to protect his position of power. He's not a good person. And we later see this is exactly what he'll do in an attempt to kill Jesus. If you look at verses 16 and following, he's furious when the Magi don't return to report what they found, and he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, two years and younger. So he's trying to protect his kingdom and his power. And Jesus, for Herod, is not someone to worship, like the Magi are looking for, but rather a threat to eliminate. It's a threat to his kingship, his position of power. It's really kind of ironic. If you know the story of the Bible, when you consider why, in fact, Jesus was born, um, it was not to protect his power. It was, in fact to make sure that others could experience the blessings of his life being poured out for them. That's why he came, to lay his life down for others, to lay down his power so that others could know it. That's completely different than Herod. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, the greatest in my kingdom is not the one who wins the survivor contest at the end of the day. No one who's going to outwit and outplay and outlast if that's what it is or something like that. That's what King Herod is. He's the first survivor. And Jesus says, that's not my goal. 
In fact, you know, the night before he was betrayed that led to the cross and his death, the reason he was born, which is to, to go there. He says, you want to know what it's like to be in my kingdom? I'm the king. Here's what it looks like in my kingdom. He bent down and he washed their smelly, stinky feet. And he said, this is what it looks like to lead. In my, this is what the greatest, this is true power in my kingdom, is to serve, to serve others. And he didn't just say that as somebody who, you know, there are people who say, do, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends, all who abandoned him on the cross, to show what it means to serve. These weren't empty words. This isn't some, some savior, some king who lives in a palatial estate and says, you guys go sacrifice your life for me because I'm eating the fatted calf on a daily basis. Filet mignon, please. He lays his life down. He was born in a place where nobody else would receive him. First who come to visit him are the people who, in the court of law, their word didn't mean anything, shepherds. These are the people he's calling to himself. And when we come to consider this passage at this time of the year, we're also confronted with the same question before us as well. How do you view Jesus? Like Herod did? Or like the Magi? Because he's either someone to worship or he's a threat to whatever we happen to worship in that place. And here's the thing. A lot of us think that we can maybe align with this. Oh yeah, I worship God. I worship Jesus. But... But our lives aren't matching up with that. Or we're deceiving ourselves. It's just words. There were a lot of people like that this day too. Herod consults the priests and the teachers of the law to confirm whether or not the Magi search is legitimate. There in verse 4. And he asks them where Christ is to be born. And they've got the answer. Hey, Bethlehem in Judea. So you'd think that the people of the day who are the leaders who know everything would be looking pretty eagerly for this exact same thing too. Magi show up, say, we've seen the star, we think the Messiah is born. Herod consults the teachers of the law, the experts, where is he going to be born? They say, gee, in the exact same place where they are looking at the star. Why are they going there? Seems to me you just kind of like clamor there. The Messiah is born. Maybe, maybe Herod's kind of saying, let's not make it obvious. Let's send a little delegation first, an advanced team. But I don't know. It seems to me that you'd be kind of making some other ways there to say, is it true? All that we've been waiting for, promising this person, we know where he's going to be born. So wouldn't you kind of have, I don't know, it just seems like you'd have somebody doing a, a little barometer check on that. It can't be that big of a place. Why aren't they going? The broader testimony of the Bible is that they simply weren't seeking the Messiah for the purpose of worship. It seems to me that we can have these ideas. Like they like the idea of a Messiah. But when he shows up. Yeah. I like the concept. But the claim that comes along with it. And even him. Talking about a kingdom. It was very different than what they expected. They didn't seem to like that. Matthew and his gospel repeatedly plays out prophecy fulfillment prophecy this was talked about and now it's coming about all throughout his gospel written primarily to a Jewish crowd to show that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah the son of David the son of God he's here the signs were all there and now magi come as well they knew about the Messiah 
all these people, but their hearts were not prepared to seek him or to worship him. And the message of the Messiah did not stir up a desire for worship, not in them, certainly not in Herod. They had all the data, they knew all the information, but they weren't willing to believe it or seek it out. They weren't willing to bend the knee. J.I. Packer, one of the first books I ever read after I became a follower of Christ, really, really read, was a book called Knowing God. It's a simple concept. He says toward the beginning, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. You can have a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of doctrine. That's the about God. But knowledge of him, that's a relational statement. That's an intimacy statement. That's, an, that's, that's a statement where you're, when I say Jesus becomes kind of central in this respect as somebody to worship, and you might be doing other things. All of life is ordered around and filtered through that grid of I am worshiping the God who's been revealed here. And that informs and instructs absolutely everything else. What we tend to do because of a sinful nature is to put something else as a filter through that grid. And we're very good at deceiving ourselves to think it's actually Jesus. But it can be lots of other things. I mean... Jesus himself said, you can't worship God in money, for example. You can't do it. You can baptize your worship of money in religious language, if you want, which is what we can do. But he says, you know what? Your treasure is where your heart is. If your heart is completely aligned with the things of God, then the way that you treat and handle money will be reflective of that. You'll see that you're not going to take it with you. You'll be generous in giving. This is not just Jesus saying it, but Paul as well. Command those who are rich in this world to be generous, not just in good deeds, but with their, their, their blessings. Who's rich in this world? Look at your pantry. Do you have more than five items in there? You're rich compared to the rest of the world. You might be poor compared to the people in the next zip, zip code, but you're wealthy compared to the rest of the world. You've got... That, and it just, it frames the way you think about everything. The choices I make in life, the, the behaviors, it's all central here. So, so Jesus is saying, I am that missing piece. I'm the one that's to be worshipped that rightly orders absolutely everything else. And again, if you read all the Old Testament, we quickly stray from that reality. Moses, dude's gone for a couple days. Let's make a new God and worship, worship that God. So we are... Like John Calvin says, our hearts are idol-making factories. We're very we're very productive. We're Protestant work ethic hearts churning out one idol after the other. And Jesus comes and he smashes those. He comes to his place of worship and he says, wait a second. This isn't a place of worship. It's a den of thieves. He starts throwing tables over. He's royally ticked. He's the king, so he's royal. And he's upset. Because the place that was supposed to be a place of worship now has been slightly shifted and now it no longer is. He says, I'm the great object of worship. I'm jealous for that. And it's not because there's some self-seeking glory that I want all for myself. It's because when I am in that place, then you, who he cares about, who he calls by name, rightly live and understand life. Everything's rightly ordered. In the new year, we're going to be uh, starting off uh, after the first week. I've been reading a book in, in our triad and decided to do a series on the seven deadly sins. And the whole notion behind those, it may be a new concept or term to you, is that 
Uh, what happens in, in that process is that our desires are, are, in, are wrongly ordered. It's not that these, it's not the money, for example, is bad. It's just that the desire, greed, it, it shifts a little bit. So we need to rightly order them. And unfortunately, because of our sin nature over history, the seven deadly sins are kind of the, the predictable path that we're all going to struggle with when it comes to kind of worshiping something different and mining what that is and then hopefully shattering it so that we can come to the one true God who's not us and nothing this world can offer except for Jesus. That's what the Magi are looking for. And Herod doesn't like that. It's going to confront him too personally. So Magi come to worship, but he had a different purpose entirely. And so let's join the Magi now as they finally make their way to the king in these final verses. They find him and they're going to worship him. And it starts in verse 9, saying after they had heard the king, they went on their way, that's Herod the king, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So celestial GPS. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I mean, one thing you pick up on looking, looking in this text is this motif of sight. Our seeing is here again. It seems like it's in many places in scripture. In the announcement of Jesus' birth, Herod saw a threat. He was disturbed. The chief priests and teachers appeared to see nothing at all. Or at least they did not perceive the significance. They were apathetic. And the Magi see, and they're overjoyed. Three times sight appears. Verse 9, they star they had seen. Verse 10, the star they saw. And verse 11, they saw the child. A lot of times in biblical narrative, if you... Uh, go to start studying this. There's intentionality in what's read. The author's trying to make a point. Three times, saw, they saw, they saw. They were aware. They were in tune with what was going on around them. The star was simply a guide pointing them to the real king and their response was proper, right? They had the right response. They bowed down and they worshiped. They were overjoyed. And there's built-in encouragement, I think, during this season to slow down and look. The sights, the smells, the message, the symbols. I mean, it's one of the reasons we have something like this, which was so uh, deftly done today. The lighting of these candles. You know, these candles are symbolizing light and joy and love and promise. They're not just pretty tea light candles. They represent something. And this time of year, that's what we're called to, to kind of slow down and see. Now, the irony, as we all know, at times during this season, is that we're so consumed, uh, at and not everybody is, with uh, the stuff that comes along with it we can miss. The, the call to remember, to slow down, to see, to look, to listen, to feel, to taste, to touch. All, everything that is pointing us to this one who was born. And the Magi do that. And their worship, as you may have noticed, takes very tangible form. The giving of gifts. What does it look like to worship this one? They've come with gifts to give. They open their treasures. They present them with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. Myrrh is a kind of a family joke for us. 
uh, Sophia, who just turned 16, her very first you know, play in school, I think it was in preschool or whatever, she was one of the three wise men, and uh, she was the one who brought myrrh. And when it came to her time, she just came up, presented Jesus the king, and said, this was her one line, myrrh. That's what she just says. I still can remember her saying it. Gold, frankincense, gold. Myrrh. <laughs> and she just walked off. That was it. We were so proud of her. You know, gold, something obviously precious, certainly for a king. Frankincense, which was used by priests in the temple. Myrrh, an aromatic resin used to embalm the dead. And a lot of people read some meaning into this, and perhaps it's true, anticipating not only the glory, but the pain to come. That this kid who was born, the king worthy of gold, would be the one who'd be born to die, embalmed as well. And there's no comment on the specific intent, but the point is their worship spilled over into the offering of gifts. They came prepared to acknowledge Jesus as king. There wasn't any frantic trip to the Dollar General store equivalent on Christmas Eve, the Bethlehem Shekel Shack, maybe, I don't know what it would be called, but there was some thoughtful preparation here. Deliberate reverence in worship. They came to worship the king. Well, what does that worship look like? And there's different elements to it, and this is kind of a, a holistic look, but I think even in this text, you see, there's duty and delight in worship. And what I mean is like there's, there's a call to worship even if you don't feel like it, <laughs> sometimes that's duty. But there's often delight in it, that this is what you were made for. And, and the two kind of come and go. I mean, there's this call to all of creation. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's why you were created. And sometimes you just got, you may not feel like it. Just not feeling the vibe of worship today. Well, it's your duty. But there are often times, too, when it is a delight because you know when you enter that space where this is what I was created for. This is rightly ordering me. And especially if you have this view of the king that the Magi did, too. He's worthy of that. I delight in that kind of worship. That's kind of what it looks like. But there's also reverence and intimacy. There's this sense of they're coming to a king and, and they're giving him worthy gifts and they want to bow down and worship, but they're bowing down and worshiping a baby in a very, you know, unpleasant kind of context who has a name, a mother's right there, Mary. It's not like he's just distant out there. He's right there with them. He's, he's close. He's nearby, as we'll see. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Not just kind of in some sort of esoteric, yeah, we know he's sort of with us. He's physically with them. In space and time. That's intimate. And there's both elements in worship. There's this sense of intentionality. They come ready. But also, I would argue, some spontaneity too. They don't exactly know what's going to happen. They, they come kind of prepared, but they're just going with the flow of what's happening as they show up too. And sort of what it looks like to give our gifts of worship as well. And there is, of course, giving and receiving. They do give something. They give something physical, tangible, something, something that has a cost associated with it. They've come not just to receive but to give, but in giving as we know, you always receive. Have you noticed that? That when you give something, there's a receiving, even if it's not something tangible, because we were designed to reflect the true giver, the one that we come to worship here. 
in the giving, you're also receiving. I mean, any of you who've ever been on a mission trip, as we call them, you know, where you've gone somewhere else and you give, I'm guessing most of you, if you stood up and said, here's my experience, say, I received way more than I gave. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think somebody else said that. <laughs> Actually, Jesus. If you don't know, Paul records, says that. It's more blessed to give to receive, but both happen in the context of worship. So we've got this kind of all of life is worship. We've got the, the act of worship sort of maybe in the celebration of Christmas, but this happens even in the context of corporate worship too. This is what worship looks like. It should be no surprise. So here they are. You got Herod, you got Magi, you got other characters we haven't even looked at and players in this, but we see these people from the east who are wise. Wise men who are worshiping him, seeking him, finding him. And then the only question to be asked for you with all these characters is, what about you? What response do you have to the, this king who was here? I mean, there's some different responses. You could be hostile like King Herod. Maybe there's some Herodians out there today who are like, Jesus, if I think about it, just ticks me off. He makes me mad because he claims to be the only one worthy of worship. And that's kind of a hostile claim to some, understandably. When somebody shows up and says, hey, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can get to God except through me. They can come across a little bit arrogant and a little bit narrow, especially in a culture that says, come on, there's just one way? Nah. So if you're hostile, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who respond with hostility. And I'm not calling you Herod. I'm not calling you a murderer of your spouse today but if you're hostile toward Jesus I want to challenge you to lay down your arms <laughs> to at least come into worship to consider and to seek and at least to some extent you're doing that because you're here not so hostile presumably that you won't even show up to listen to somebody talking about this you kind of know what's coming when you walk in a church door don't you <laughs> nonetheless there's some more subtle hostility in our hearts as well that we may need to ask God to root out in us. And show me, where am I being hostile to, to this? Where am I resisting? Where am I not trusting? Where do I have unbelief? Those are kind of forms of hostility. Or you might this morning be apathetic. Well, hostility is there, certainly in Herod and his minions, but there's a lot of apathy, it seems. These people, these teachers of the law, they had all the data, but they just didn't really care to do anything about it. Like, yeah, I'm just showing up. I guess. I've got the stuff figured out, but I don't want it to make a real difference. That might be you this morning, just kind of apathetic, just going with the flow and going through the motions. Um, and I would say to you, wake up! If you're slumbering, it's not time to be sleeping. I mean, Jesus didn't come just to have a nice little celebration for us to open up some gifts. That's not what it's about. And if it's become that, if you've been lulled into a place of slumber, then arise from your slumber and realize Jesus comes to say, I am the only one worthy of worship. This isn't to be, you know, it's to be trifled with. Seek the Lord, Isaiah says, while he may be found. Because there's a time when the waters rise and there'll be no escape. Well, how about ending on a good note? You might be overjoyed. 
Like you might be really excited and anticipating this and you've been looking forward to this for whatever reason. Just like these magi, they come and they are overjoyed with what they have discovered. Wholehearted worship. You're fully invested in this. You just love this time of year because it's lifting up the one, even culturally speaking, who you adore on a daily basis. I mean, we know that Christmas is every day. If you're a believer, right? You celebrate this risen king all the time. It doesn't just take a one-time special acknowledgement. And yet, we have that, and we need to cherish it and remember it and slow down because, frankly, it's easy to lose sight even if you're somebody who's overjoyed. For whatever the reason may be, call it commercialism, cynicism, even apathy and hostility creeping into your own heart, it's easy to lose sight. And this text talks about sight a lot. So why not ask the king who gives us sight to help us to see clearly? Even against the backdrop of pain, this can be a very hard time of year for some. This can be the worst. It's the most wonderful time of the year? Yeah, right. You know, you're strapped financially. You can't, you're not really crazy about the people who are showing up to celebrate it with you, maybe. Or even the ones that are. There's friction and there's conflict. And you're trying to like, can it just be easy? Can't life just be happy for once? And now this is, I mean, that's, you're normal if you're experiencing some of that stuff. And this is what's so amazing about the message of Christmas. Christ came into that mess. He was born into the mess, intentionally. He could have been born anywhere. I mean, anywhere in Bethlehem at least. But here he is, born to a virgin who was turned away, who already was embroiled in scandal being celebrated by the people nobody would listen to. So if you're struggling this Christmas season, you've come to the right place, right? To a king who understands. To a savior who was born in the mess for people who are messy. I remember, you know, some of you know Scott Brown talking about the shepherds coming. I, it's the only sermon title I remember. Smelly Agricultural People. That was the name of his message. <laughs> when they showed up to... To worship God. That's kind of who we are spiritually speaking. <laughs> if we're honest. And this is what's so beautiful about this king. He won't reject us if we come to him in that state. That's because you're, you're coming as you are. Uh, and that's, that's why he came as he did. So the, the call this Christmas season, I hope, in our hearts is, if you're wise, you're still going to seek him, right? Just like these... Wise men from the East did as well. That's the opportunity that we have. Not just this morning, um, but, but Christmas Eve as well. And I hope you'll come back and, and worship with us. If you're, you're around, find somewhere to worship on Christmas Eve to continue exploring and celebrating this. Christmas Eve service for us is my, my favorite uh, Christmas service or year, worship service of the year. It's, it's the same thing every year and it's just beautiful I love it it's the scripture readings and the songs and the reminder and the anticipation of celebration so hopefully um, we'll continue to seek him together in the days ahead Father we do pray now